Hello, and welcome back to Think Critical, the podcast where we discuss everything necessary and proper in reason and public policy. I'm your host, Joshua Miller. This week, I'll be interviewing Samuel Hammond at the Niskanen Center about how to repair America's economy, its welfare state, and its state capacity. We take a look at key insights into what makes a state effective, how can the government improve economic growth, and how our culture warring can hold us back from becoming the nation we really are meant to be. So, Sam, just for our audience, uh, what would be the way you describe yourself or what you do? Um, I mean, my title is Poverty and Welfare Policy Director for the Niskanen Center. Uh, we're a think tank. We work to do research and advocacy on issues of national public policy. And in my domain, that's around poverty, welfare, economic development policy, labor market stuff. Um, and then if you ask the, uh, the government, you know, I think I'm categorized as like just an economist. So. Okay. Yes. So I think as uh, for my lead off, many people accuse the U S welfare system of being inadequate in your opinion. Is it inadequate? And in, and if it is, uh, what makes it that way? What's it's, what are its problems? Um, you know, it's, it's broader problems. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I've in the past called the United States the, a, a, a reluctant welfare state, right? <clears throat> um, in the sense that it's not that we don't have social programs um, or expand a significant amount of GDP on, on, uh, social, on public welfare and social welfare type of issues. It's that um, for largely historical reasons, many of the, these programs are implemented in a kind of inefficient fashion. Uh, in some cases, like they're like completely subterranean in, in the sense that there's no sort of program you can point to. It's, it's through financial systems, financial products, through various sort of Rube Goldberg-like uh, subsidy arrangements. And, you know, take, the, take, take housing, for example, um, you know, where, where, uh, where some other country might provide grants to people to buy their first house, like a, like a down payment grant, um, or maybe even provide housing directly, like through social housing, like, um, like in Austria. Uh, in the U.S., we have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which basically help underwrite super, super cheap, super long mortgages, right? Um, and so you would think, well, we have a free market in housing. Well, actually not. We have <clears throat> these giant... Um, state-sponsored institutions that make it possible for you to get a cheap mortgage. And that's a kind of middle-class welfare state, right? It's not a conventional social safety net program, but it's also the kind of thing that's kind of hidden from view. Um, so the U.S. has a mix of sort of on-budget, clear welfare programs, but then an, an awful lot of these, this sort of sub- subterranean stuff. And like I said, that's partly because U.S. welfare state for historical reasons was implemented in a very reluctant way, like with a lot of resistance. And and in many cases, it's actually easier to get something passed if you can kind of hide it in financial products or what have you. 
So, um, the, the U.S. You say the U.S. welfare state is uh, a lot. A lot of its, I guess, its implementation is is sort of uh, hidden in the bureaucracy. Uh, like, what would be your your solution to that? Like, what would it be to to, to simplify to you know? So, I guess um, remove a lot of the restrictions of in the welfare system, or would you just cut away a lot of these programs and and take a different, entirely different approach at the problems? I think it's a little, bit, a little bit of both. I think you also just, in terms of political realism, have to kind of work with the um, the cards you're dealt with, and and not um, sort of, you know, there you can you can get lost in kind of fantasies of beginning with a blank slate and how how you would do things from scratch, but that's not really in like the feasible set of policy options. So you know, there's definitely places where you where the U.S. system welfare system could use a lot of sort of consolidation and simplification. Um, there's a concept that my colleague Steve Tellis coined called kludocracy. And he says this, that the United States is sort of the archetype of kludocracy. And a kludge in computer science is when you have like a program that's, it runs into a bug and you can't quite figure out what's causing the bug. So instead of uh, instead of sort of finding the root cause, you just write another piece of code that says, you know, if, if this bug happens, do something else, <laughs> right? And so a lot of the U.S. welfare system and, and the U.S. government more generally is built up of these kludges where, you know, something breaks. And instead of re- trying to figure out what's broken and making something sort of more straightforward or simple, uh, there's another program that gets added on top or another, another regulation that gets added on top. And over time, those kludges accumulate into this sort of huge hodgepodge of programs that it's really hard to tell which ones are important, which ones are sort of the band-aids holding the whole thing together. Um, and so, you know, uh, one of our principles at the Niskanen Center is, um, you know, we favor sort of big, blunt, simple programs in part because they're transparent and they, they are sort of resistant to becoming that, you know, kind of corrupted through, through bureaucratic processes. Um, and in that case, it's sort of like trying to make the appeal to, to uh, you know, conservatives, for example, who might be skeptical of big government and um, the bureaucracy and the tendency for bureaucracies to sort of grow themselves over time to say, well, actually, if you really, you know, care about, um, you know, limited government and so on, you know, maybe we want to have some of these things be more transparent, more on budget, um, because when they're on budget and they're transparent and they're big, blunt and simple, um, they're kind of a lot easier to uh, to sort of scrutinize and to apply oversight to um, and to and for the broader public to kind of have, you know, more meaningful debates about, you know, do we want to expand Social Security or or reform it? Um, you know, in the context of Social Security, that debate can be had. But in the context of our healthcare system, it's because it's so complex and there's so, so much clu- Clujocracy, uh, it's it's difficult to even know where to begin, and so people have like an intuition: oh, we needed to expand healthcare, um, but they don't. But like that's a that how, how to hash that intuition out into a, a specific set of policies is super super complicated. Yeah, like uh, it's it's kind of striking how 
in in Germany or in Scandinavia, they're gonna you're gonna see like higher scores for those countries on economic freedom in this in the indices. Uh, you know, despite you think you think of them as having these massive welfare states and bigger regulative sp- states, but uh, um, in my experience, the, those states they they have these big re- regulatory states, they have these big welfare states, but they 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 make a lot more sense. They're designed a lot more sensibly, and they're you can you know where the regulations are. Meanwhile, like like United States, like each each. I mean, there's also also this pie is a result of a federal system. I'd think that there's a lot of there's a lot of different um, regulations, just different areas, and apply to very specific situations. Like remember in uh, the primaries of Kamala Harris's very specific Pell Grants proposal policy that came out of a meme. But that that, that that you know at the end of the day, that's the kind of policies that Congress ends up passing a lot, right? Right, and and that's partly because of this sort of tug of war dynamic, where um, instead of having like in a, in a European social democracy, where you have like a center left party and a center right party, and maybe the center left party wants to expand benefits on the margin, and the center right party wants to, you know, re, you know, put it back into the rainy day fund or something like that. Um, like the U.S. political spectrum of like actual acceptable opinion and ideological positioning is so much wider that it's really difficult to build consensus or consensus around reform. And as you saw from like the Obamacare debates, it's, it's really difficult to try to, in this case, you know, comprehensively reform the U S healthcare system with, you know, 51% support, right. You need much higher rates of support. And, you know, that was possible in the past. I think, you know, Medicare, for example, was passed with 55 Senate votes. So and technically the Republican Party could have filibustered it, but didn't. So, and the reason they didn't was because that was before the filibuster was so like abused. Um, and so like over time, because of polarization and and just the broader spectrum of, of ideology in the US, it's getting much harder to, to do these more radical reforms, structural reforms. Now that said, like one of the things I've made, in the, a point I've made in the past in the context of Scandinavia, like calling these countries socialist is so misleading because it, it sees size of government in, in quantitative terms only, right? Like, okay, you know, these countries have large value added taxes, they, they spend a lot of money, and therefore, like, as a their, their, their footprint in GDP is a lot more than it is in the US. But you could imagine a society that had almost no government spending, like the minimum amount they need to basically keep the lights on. And instead, do everything through regulation. Like instead of having, um, you know, Social Security or or uh, Medicare, we just mandate that every employer provide their their employee pensions and and robust health care, right? And that mandate is like a super draconian regulation that very few businesses would be able to um, follow. But it would it would add zero percent to to the government's uh, imprint on GDP. And so if you don't have a more qualitative understanding of, of big government, quote unquote, um, you can be really led astray into focusing on tax and spend per se, rather than the, the makeup of how that taxing and spending is being done. And what, what is sort of the, the whole, the whole sector of regulation that doesn't actually affect spending, but in sort of practical terms is often way more relevant to, you know, basic liberty. Like, uh, I know, um, Tyler Cohen 
of the marginal revolution in Martin Mercatus Center. He likes to call himself a state capacity libertarian because he says that it's not really necessarily how big the state is or what the state's doing that you know could be infringing on liberty, but it's uh, it's how much the state at the end of the day is taking control of things. That you can have a state which is strong and is effective. And, you know, it could extract a higher taxes or set industrial policy or, or, or things of that nature. But it's not – But if it, as long as it's not overbearingly regulating and, and crushing down dissent, that's what a large state is. You can have a small and strong state. So uh, if you look historically, actually um – and this is where sort of like the, the liberal tradition more generally and libertarianism diverges. Like the liberal tradition, and um, if you, for contemporary scholarship on this, Mark, Mark Koyama has a bunch of interesting research. Uh, like liberalism arises as an, as an ideology, as a philosoph- philosophical point of view with the, with the centralized state, right? Like as feudalism falls away and these sort of uh, rinky-dink kingdoms sort of consolidate and and modernize and you know develop civil law and stuff like that like that's when liberalism emerges that's when free markets as we understand them emerge because you move from a a super sort of informal system to one with well-defined property rights and title and uh, arbitration and and common law and all that stuff requires a really strong state and so it's this sort of irony that you know, I think even going back to like Thomas Hobbes understood, but libertarians kind of lost track of this irony that often liberty and freedom uh, and a powerful centralized government uh, go hand in hand. Um, and state capacity is one way of capturing that idea, right? So there's a, a huge difference between a big political government and one with and one that's and a government that's like highly effective. And so, sort of the classic example of this is like, you know, land reform in Asia, right? Like. Uh, when you know, Taiwan or Japan or China, countries that have long histories of sort of professionalized bureaucracies and and you know, had a, had a lot of pre-existing state capacity, when they went to reform their feudal land systems, that you know that involved a lot of like you know, land re- redistribution. We're going to take land from the plantations and distribute it among the peasants, and that was key to their development model. Uh, that they were able to do that because when like the emperor or whatever was like, hey, we're going to do land reform, you know, that they were able to do it. They like they, they passed a policy and then that, that policy was able to come into fruition. Whereas uh, countries with weaker governments or have, with less state capacity like the Philippines or, or Indonesia, when they attempted land reform, it's like the property owners were like, you know, coming, you know, over my dead body, right? <laughs> and so they're unable to actually execute the policy. Um, another example I've used in the past is, uh, in the context of Canada, um, I, have, I have a whole post on this called Three Motivations for State Capacity Libertarianism, where I, I sort of try to take Tyler's post on this to, to another level. Um, in the 1950s, Alberta had a, Alberta's province of Canada, Alberta had a, a terrible rat problem. Uh, rats were sort of getting into uh, farms and eating everything up. Um, and so uh, the Minister of Agriculture one day, like I think like 1951 or something like that, uh, declared a new program to eradicate the rat. And it was like an all of government thing where um, there was basically propaganda posters put up. Like if you see a rat, kill it, report it. Uh, they, they established a border with the neighboring province um, and, and uh, went within like a 10 mile radius of the border and um, by mandate, got access to everyone's property to to uh, to basically gas the rats that were there. 
Uh, and like slowly and steadily over a course of two or three years, they completely eliminated Alberta's rat population. And now if you go Google a map of uh, rats by country or uh, rodents by country, um, it's like everywhere in the world, but Antarctica and Alberta have rats. <laughs> and this is just like a, a perfect example of state capacity. It's like the minister of agriculture has an idea. It, it's something that generates like a ton of positive externalities because now you don't have all this sort of farm uh, produce that's like getting eaten and uh, going bad. And they just like over a matter of a year or two completely executed it through, through basically communication channels through regulatory channels by enlisting a, a large army of basically rat hunters. Um, and you can see how having that broader sort of state capacity could be really useful in the context of say like a pandemic where you want to like mobilize, um, you know, say contact tracers to go after uh, people who've been in contact with, with a, with someone who's positive. And the U.S., because it lacks a lot of that state capacity, like I think that's in some ways the root cause of our hugely divergent outcomes. But it's another example of of sort of that Hobbesian insight, where like a country like Taiwan, where they have a lot of state capacity, and they and, and you know if you do get COVID, you have to quarantine in these like buildings for 14 days. Like in, on one level, that seems way more draconian, but on the other, on, a, on another level, it's sort of like the price that buys them a lot more freedom and, and liberty than, than you, than you have if you let the virus run rampant and you're sort of stuck in this sort of permanent lockdown. Yeah. Like, uh, you can't really have freedom if everybody's dead. And at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, the main economic effect of the, of the virus has not been a supply shock. It's been a demand shock. I mean, you aren't going to get people going out and buying products until it's safe to do so. So like, you know, from a, and from a, from a, if we're going to, you know, go to the consequential libertarianism, but what's the, what's the ends of liberty and the ends of liberty in this, in this scenario would be, we have to we have to control the main thing that can prevent the person from actually doing what they want to, and we just can't look at the, only the state, right? So, um, what are the you know the biggest improvements or the ways which we can increase our state capacity? And then, you know, if, if we got the state capacity, well, what what should we do with it? Like, what are like your the priorities for what to do with the state capacity? I mean, I mean, the more you look into why the U.S. has sort of this diminished state capacity. Um, the more you realize how everything basically, you know, all roads lead back to civil service and procurement reform, basically. And, and these are some of like the most boring topics on the planet. Um, you know, how, what, what is like the bid and tender process for like a government contract? You know, that, that's super important. It's, it seems sort of, you know, dry, but like the fact that the you know, health, healthcare.gov was so crappy. Well, this is the this is the most boring podcast in the universe, so it's right in. But yeah, like healthcare.gov, a perfect example. Like the government couldn't even make a website, and um, and you know that all goes back to sort of procurement. Um, you know, back in the day, like if you think about like the Apollo Project or the Manhattan Project, these big mission-oriented endeavors that the U.S. government executed on and was super successful at. Um, you know the. The, the, the histories of those projects are often stories of small teams working in a very hierarchical structure where there's, um, you know, a boss basically telling people what to do and with a lot of leeway and limited oversight on how to do it, right? Um, and uh, over time, bureaucracies, like, 
basically like that, that equilibrium requires you having a lot of trust in the decision makers to not abuse their power. Just like you have in a corporation, you, you know, you entrust the senior managers to make decisions on behalf of the shareholders. Um, and you want, you ideally want that to be relatively flexible so people can make, you know, to, to, to be nimble and to be entrepreneurial and so on. And uh, bureaucracies over time, I think, accumulate a, a lot of process. A lot, uh, you know, the, in, in the case of procurement, for example, like these rules around competitive bidding um, to make sure that everyone has like a fair shot at winning a contract or uh, some of the like the diversity um, uh, initiatives where like, you know, you can, you can be preferentially, you can get a, a government contract preferentially if you're a veteran, for example. Uh, and then, and then um, the whole suite of sort of Buy America provisions that require you to, you know, make sure that uh, before you buy some paper clips, that the paper clips you're buying couldn't be bought in the United States. Uh, and all, all these things eventually become layered on top of one another to the point where, you know, doing even very simple things becomes this, this huge task. I'll just give you a great, uh, simple example. Um, you know, I have, I've often wondered why agencies of the U.S. government don't do more like A-B testing of forms because you can get, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to like designing a well-designed form. Um, and like if you've ever done your own taxes, it's like, well, these forms could be way more simple. Uh, but they actually have a rule under the Paperwork Reduction Act that says, that puts limits on um, an agency's ability to do surveys. And, uh, and, and any, a sur- any survey with 10 or more people has to get um, pre uh, has to get approval from OMB. Now, you know, if you're Facebook or something like that, a website, you're constantly making little tinkering changes to the, to the user interface, to everything. And sometimes you like have a new feature and you want to push it out to like a subset of the population a subset of the users so you can test whether this new feature works, whether people like it or not, or you can test different versions of it. Like the U S government could be doing that, but for under this law, anytime it wants to push it or test something on like 10 or more people that counts as surveying the public and they have to go through like this three month process to get approval. So, you know, you would think that (laughs) you would think that a lot of this stuff is easier than it sounds, but um, like there is just this huge thicket of, procedure and process and blurred accountability um, that, you know, just has made the entire U.S. government sclerotic uh, across many dimensions. Um, And it's the sort of thing that can kind of exist through inertia until you have a giant crisis and you realize, hey, oh my God, you know, we've basically, we're basically in a straitjacket and we, you know, there's a lot of things that are super obvious that we need to do, but we can't do it. So uh, when 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 you say uh, U.S. government should be run more like a company, it means like you know run more effectively and not run for you know if 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 we really want to say the U.S. government should be run more like a company, we should be saying it in the context of uh, we want to we want to reduce the amount of times we're kneecapping ourselves and not nothing to do with uh, you know pro- like our profit margins or whatever. Yeah, I think when people say the government should be run like a corporation, they they or a business, they um, you know that they're that requires some unpacking. Like, you know, I think some people probably voted for Trump because they thought, you know, having a businessman in there will, will be good. But like, you know, business people often perform really poorly in government because they, they are so unused to that uh, sort of model of bureaucracy. Um, when I say, I don't think government should be run like a corporation. What I do think is 
that uh, within an agency or within a particular domain, it's really important to know who's in charge, who's responsible, and who, and, and therefore who who takes accountability when something goes wrong. And often in the U.S. government, you have situations where something goes wrong and there's like four or five people who could all theoretically be responsible and they're all kind of passing the buck to one another and, and basically there's never any accountability. And so often, uh, so it's sort of, there's, there's an opportunity for like a win-win where, you know, um, if agencies that are supposed to regulate this or that, you know, actually have actual authority to regulate this or that. And the people at the top of it, at the, the heads of those agencies and, and in the senior management of those agencies actually have kind of plenary authority to, you know, reorganize, restructure, to move things around. Um, like that, that's a win in the sense of, you know, building more flexible, competent, nimble government, but it's also a win when it comes to accountability because sometimes, um, you know, sometimes when people mess up and there will be more mistakes made uh, because, you know, you're letting people take more risks, uh, then you have someone you can actually point to who, who you hold responsible. So, you know, if we end up getting this, you know, this big state capacity and say we, you know, we remove some of the political barriers that exist in the United States, like um, like the filibuster or, you know, maybe we uncap the house or something along those lines. Uh, if in, if if you were to get you know get asked what are the what are the welfare state priorities and the economic growth priorities domestic economic growth priorities for the United States what pol- what are the key policies we should pass given that scenario right so on like the welfare side um, a lot of this stuff will seem simple but it is like low hanging fruit like uh, step one we need a modern tax and transfer system one in which you know, if you if we're doing a, another stimulus check, we have absolute certainty that everyone who get everyone who should get a stimulus check gets it, and gets it you know relatively immediately, directly deposited in their bank account or what have you. Um, because we do so much policy through the tax code, that we've run into this problem where uh, the IRS doesn't the IRS only has information on you insofar as you file taxes in the past. And if you're the you know the, the one in two Americans who don't uh, make enough income to file federal taxes regularly or routinely, and that includes working age adults, it includes retirees, it includes students, it includes people who are low income, you might as well not exist from the IRS's perspective. So the IRS has to use these other databases, other sources, and unless that's sort of written into law, they um, they they don't have like the authority to actually go hunt you down. Um, in other countries, you know, the, the, the best case, the best example, uh, the world leader is Estonia. Like Estonia, uh, their entire government is, is built on like a version of the blockchain that actually predates Bitcoin. Um, it's like everything is uh, totally distributed and uh, censors, censorship resistant and it's impossible to lose your information. When you, fill, you fill out a form once and uh, you know, every part of the government is able to reference that form. You never have to fill out another form again. Um, when you when you want to pay your taxes or you want to receive your welfare or transfer payment, it just automatically drops into your bank account, I think, with like a one-week delay. Um, and it's just totally integrated. Like, having a having that in the United States would be, it would, it would be a game changer um, because often you have proposals for things like UBI or, or um, 
uh, you know, modern, or, you know, more robust unemployment insurance. Uh, these proposals are great and are worth exploring, but you don't, if we don't even have like the basic architecture to implement it on, then we're, we're sort of missing the first step, right? Like we could pass a UBI tomorrow, but um, you know, that's only so that's only as good as we, as like our capacity to actually send people checks uh, or we, we ran into this problem with the, with the, uh, the, the, uh, the cares act where, you know, people wanted to pass a, uh, an expansion to unemployment insurance that was pegged to your prior wages. So if you lost your job due to COVID, you would get 100% of your prior wages. It turns out that a lot of state unemployment offices like literally don't have the programming capabilities to peg your wages to 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 peg your benefit to your prior wages. Um, they have it for uh, a particular formula, but not for the formula they wanted to use. And so we had to do this thing where we just added six hundred dollars to everyone's unemployment check and that was a that was like a compromise made based on just like lacking the, the foundational like it infrastructure to, to actually do a an effective social insurance program so uh, uh you know i I, t- I take it with um with you know if you're a fan of estonia um Estonia is a, like economic success. In their first prime minister, Mart Lar, he, he credits a lot of the success that you know him and his you know, the following prime ministers they had to their their commitment to these um these like liberal libertarian values. He said it's the first book he the only book he ever read on political science was Free to Choose by Friedman, which is a you know it's a personal favorite of mine. Although I prefer Friedman's earlier work. Um, so do you think that? In terms of um, other modifications in the United States, we can we can do with a with a with a more general reduction in in in, in clear regulations, um, like they like like they did in Estonia, where they, they put things like the flat tax. They got rid of most of their their like their social you know restrictions. There's a uh, uh, and I forget if they have a minimum wage or not. But I know, I know for a while they didn't. Um, well, I think the um, you know the former communist bloc and like Eastern and Central Eastern Europe are. Are kind of unique because after the end of after the fall of the Soviet, Soviet Union, uh, like there was a genuine kind of libertarian moment in those countries. Uh, uh, the, there's a great article by Dan, Roth, Dan Rothschild on um, the Slovak libertarian moment, uh, and many of these countries, including Estonia, adopted. You know, basically, this was sort of like the byproduct of like the CIA and Voice of America, like propagandizing the Soviet Union for so long about like free to choose and stuff like that. And like literally, when the Soviet Union fell, like there were, there were Western academics, uh, libertarian, classically liberal academics that were like being paid to go to these countries and lecture and explain to people about the benefits of freedom and free markets and so on. Um, and in some of like the Soviet satellite states, they actually adopted things pretty, pretty, uh, by the book. Um, so the, you know, in, in the case of Estonia or like questions about regulation per se, I, I don't, I don't tend to think about regulation on a like more, more or less spectrum. I think of it more as, you know, um, regulate, I think of it more in terms of like designing markets and, um, you know, markets can be poorly designed markets that are, you know, quote unquote, overly, overly regulated, are essentially ones where we're trying to micromanage things too much or um, build in too many veto points or, or points where you need to get permission. Um, and I think it's a much less uh, much less ideological way to look at it because, um, 
because less is not always more in the case of regulation. So to give you, give you a good example, in, in the U.S. context, there's evidence that shows uh, school choice programs, charter schools are actually better run in blue states. And the reason appears to be that in blue states with school choice programs, they build in more market structure around uh, the rules of when uh, when a bad charter school is forced to shut down and um, how charter schools are evaluated. So it's far from laissez-faire. It's actually a kind of regulated or managed competition, right? It's it's like the difference between um, between like a between like a NBA basketball game and like street ba- street ball, right? Like street ball is like essentially laissez-faire, like that's the libertarian approach. Uh, you know, no no rules. You know, you you can elbow people, you can foul people left and right. <laughs> um, you know. Like that has a, a you know there's a there's a place for that but but like one of the goals of like sports leagues is to structure the rules in a way that actually engenders like a form of competition that is pro social and, and in their case it's a you know it's it, it's important to you know have have um, you know games that are close and and there's never one team that dominates because then that keeps it exciting. And so their goal is to make things exciting. In the case of school choice, it's like, well, we want to create an education market where there's sort of this system of competition between schools and teachers. And the goal is to like lift test scores to create educational opportunity and so on. And so and so it's the same of, with the market overall. Like the goal of the market is in principle to basically increase human welfare um, and laissez-faire sometimes aligns with that, but actually laissez-faire is kind of undefined. Sometimes, you know, in the case of the U.S., like the U.S. bankruptcy code is, is there's no like natural way that should be. Like we, we've chosen to make a, uh, our bankruptcy code set in, in a way that makes it easier for companies to shut down and to file bankruptcy and to get relief from their creditors. Other countries don't do that. Um, that was a choice. And that choice was made because it's, Clear that when it's easier for country for for failing companies to shut down, that's better for the economy overall. Because instead of being sort of like you know dragged out in lawsuits for years with your creditors, you get to shut down and start over, um, and you know those resources get recycled. So it's a much more productive way of looking at it because you you sort of set a north star what you're aiming for, and you then you can work backwards to what are the structures that get you, that get you there rather than having an ideological position that that less regulation is always better. So, uh, you know, going back to the Friedman, he, he once wrote, and I think in 19, I want to say 1977, but I get the year, might, have, might be getting the year wrong. Um, in neoliberalism and its prospects that the, the goal of neoliberalism is a, you know, it take, accepts the 19th century classical liberal emphasis on the individual, but it rejects the 19th century classical liberal focus on laissez-faire in favor of a focus on the goal of competitive order. So would you say like, you know, your goal is competitive order? You know, Hayek has a, has a great uh, essay too called, um, I think, uh, I think it's, uh, I forget what it's called order as a emergent part of competition or something like that. Um, I mean, this is, this is a, when, when they talk, when they say neoliberal, they're really referring to the sort of German neoliberal school, the order liberals who had this view that the point of the market was not laissez faire, but basically ordered competition. And that, that was sort of the view I was basically expressing. So, um, moving beyond, uh, 
welfare. Um, so uh, in your you wrote a report called Faster Growth, Fair Growth, which attempts to diagnose and propose solutions to the stagnation of growth and the magnification of inequality in the United States. Um, what do you think are like your core insights? You know, um, from the report that you think policymakers should know, uh, policymakers should know, like. What are the what are if you had to say if you if you got in a room with Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and, and um, you know and, and Biden, I guess you honestly said, okay, if we're gonna set the agenda, here are the here are the core problems in the, which are inhibiting our growth, magnifying our inequality, and here are the, here are my solutions for you. Like if you if you had the elevator pitch them. I mean, the first thing I would try to express to them is just the gravity of the problem, right? Um, you know, Mansur Olson has this famous book called The Rise and Decline of Nations. And his theory is that countries um, will decline over time because of the accumulation of uh, basically special interest group um, coalitions. So, you know, he he makes this distinction between the encompassing coalition or like the the general interest and distributive coalitions or special interests. And over time, because of sort of the logic of collective action, countries like you know you know build up these special interests that are sort of like barnacles on a ship and unless there's some process for you know cleaning the the hull of the ship then you know a nation will sort of peak and over time kind of stagnate and decline um and be surpassed by other powers and and i always try to get that point across to them to say look this the u.s is in you know the u.s was the most powerful country in the world for a long time. We, we still are in, in most ways, but um, we're showing a lot of signs of peaking and entering the, 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 the very same dynamics Mansur Olson identified as being associated with, with, with decline and not just relative decline, but decline of our own institutional capacity. Right. Um, and so like basically try to get that point across to say, you need to get your act together and stop, you know, fighting over, silly things and you know take our report as a roadmap for sets of transpartisan policies transpartisan reforms that are you know we're not talking about abortion or you know the green new deal or anything too um uh divisive we're 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 saying you know let's modernize our social insurance system let's shore up families with the child allowance let's uh Let's upgrade our unemployment program to make it a, re- a re-employment program. So when people are disrupted, whether due to trade, due to a pandemic, due to a recession, that they're able to bounce back quickly and, and to retrain. Let's um, upgrade how we do science. So researchers don't spend 40% of their time writing grant reports that, uh, or grant proposals that get rejected and, and they have to go back to the drawing board. Let's uh, modernize our civil service to allow more risk-taking and more flexibility. Um, you know, these, uh, the, the series of things we talk about are all areas that if you step back and look are, are really about trying to restore, you know, to, to really to make America great again in like a very, uh, literal way. Um, and I think one of the, the things that uh, is hurting the U.S. more generally in the U.S. political system is this, you know, we were we were much more cohesive following World War II. Uh, we were much more united against the Soviet threat during the Cold War. And, you know, now we're starting to see glimmers of bipartisan 
you know, unity around combating the threat from China and the rise of China. But in, in a big way, we've been sort of complacent because there hasn't been any real existential threat, and and that's led us that's led us down a path of uh, of of sclerosis at the institutional level and polarization at the political level that inhibits our ability to actually uh, fix these problems. So, you know, our, our report covers a variety of areas from social insurance, from science and R&D and, and economic development to um, to deregulatory things like around housing and intellectual property. But the common thing running through them is essentially that, that this is all about rebuilding and re-strengthening and revitalizing U.S. institutions, both the market institutions and the public sector institutions, and putting our economy back on sort of a high road path, uh, both for our, our own sake, because it's great to have, you know, prosperity at home, but also to maintain like our kind of civilizational um, mission to be like robust and self-confident in, in the face of these growing global threats. So you touched on a collect uh, collective action problems uh, just there. So I, uh, you know, you also wrote a paper on voting as a collective action problem. Could you provide like a little bit of insight into what you mean by that? And uh, and then what other problems in this is this situation you term exactly as being a collective action problem? Um, you know, for us to address as such. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the term comes from Mansur Olson again. He has a, a book called The Logic of Collective Action, but it's basically just one, you know, intro game theory, right? Like if you've thought of a prisoner's dilemma, that, you know, you get two prisoners who, who uh, have committed a crime um, and you're in, you interview them separately and you say, hey, if you rat on your co-conspirator, you'll get off with a light sentence and you tell the other other uh criminal the exact same thing they'll both rat on each other because that's their individual incentive and but but because they both have ratted on each other they both end up going to jail for a long time um so uh you know those dynamics are 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 sort of ever present in you know institutions and and market economies the market itself is a kind of collective action problem right um when when a company undercuts their their competitor on price it's in they're doing that because it's individually rational if they know if they price their or widget 10 cents cheaper that they can capture that market share. But then their competitor turns around and then cuts their prices another 10 cents cheaper. And this, this over time, you know, generates the market dynamic where price falls to, to marginal cost. And so, um, you know, in, in some sense, a free market is sort of an orchestrated collective action problem. It's, it's a problem from the point of view of the producers and from the point of view of the firm it's a, it's a, it's a collective good from the point of view of consumers. Um, and so there's lots of collective action problems. Climate change is a collective action problem because, um, you know, individually burning some gas, uh, or burning some coal or whatever, a little bit of pollution, um, isn't meaningful to the climate, but when, when we all do it, it, it can end up warming the entire earth. Um, and so it's more than you need to, you need some way of sort of aligning individual incentives to the, to the common good. In the case of voting, you know, I just wrote this little essay just sort of poking fun at libertarians because often libertarians will say, you know, why, why should I bother vote? Because, you know, my vote has very little chance of being decisive. I think, you know, there's one estimate that says your chance of being the decisive vote in the U S election is like one in 60 million. Um, 
and that's totally true. But if you if you play you know play the kind of thought experiment out, if we all internalize that and we all just were like, oh, why should I bother vote? Um, it's so unlikely that I, my vote actually matters. Suddenly, like your vote does matter because no one else is voting, <laughs> right? And so there's so there's there's a sort of collective action structure to voting. Um, and one of the reasons why we have this like civic duty to vote is 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 actually for that very reason because voting is individually kind of irrational, uh, but collectively really important. Collectively important for the you know for giving governments their mandate and this this the legitimacy that they derive from like the consent of the public and so on. And so you want as many people to vote as possible. And you can go the Australian route and have a mandate and tell people to vote. Uh, and order them or find them if they don't vote. Um, or you, you could try to in, internalize it as a norm where like if you don't vote, you're kind of stigmatized um, or there's just a lot of social expectation that you should vote. And, you know, one thing libertarians argue is like a lot of these public goods, a lot of these collective action problems can be solved from a bottom-up way through norms. And so I, th- I just think it's ironic that in, 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 in a case of like voting, they actively argue against voting without, without understanding like the normative side of it, right? Like in, in some ways, like the social pressure we feel to vote and the kind of pressure you get from community groups like churches or, or labor unions and so on, um, like that is that kind of bottom-up dynamic that that is solving this collective action problem where your one meaningless vote gets transformed into a super meaningful endorsement from like a union federation or what have you. Um, so, you know, I, 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 that was an old essay that I republished this year in light of the election, but mostly it's just uh, another one of my attempts to troll libertarians. So uh, I guess that leads me into like a, like a final point. Like, do we need like a, at the end of the day, do we also need some sort of cultural reform in the United States? Like a, like a re like, I, I, I guess the, the term rebirth myth is very loaded considering, you know, it's context used throughout history, but do we need, do we need like a, like a, like a unifying figure or a rebirth sort of myth or like a, like a, like a cultural reawakening? Um, like something along those lines. Um, it's hard to know exactly, you know, people, it, there's def, there, we need some we need something to knock us out of our complacency that's for sure right and this pandemic might be might be that thing like maybe going forward uh, we're much less complacent and um, and this is like just what we needed to break us out of our complacency maybe China will be that thing but um, at the cultural level I think it's uh, it's unclear what what that really means um, you know on the right sometimes you hear people sort of longing for a, a religious re, re, a reawakening, sort of like a rediscovery of Christianity. Um, and my, my argument has been sort of, you know, careful what you wish for, because like on every sort of sociological dimension, the great, the great awakening, like this, this rise of sort of social justice politics looks exactly like and, and has all the sort of historical characteristics of past great awakenings. Like it is a kind of secularized Protestantism, right? Um, and, uh, and it's this weird thing where like a lot of conservatives, you know, have this desire to have like a one nation culture, but then are so, so opposed to social justice politics. Um, even though it is in, in, in a weird way, like the ultimate sort of expression of a uniquely American point of view. Um, so I, the country's really divided along culture. I don't see an easy resolution. I don't think it, 
I think the optimistic point is that um, we don't need to be, uh, we don't, you know, cult, being united and having solidarity around culture is, is um, less important if you have broad agreement about, around certain sort of thinner concepts. And I, I don't mean sort of like the cliche, like America as an idea type of stuff, but like take, take the threat of the Soviet Union, like there was bitter cultural differences and disagreement and political disagreement in the United States during the 20th century. But when it came to like key national security priorities that there was a lot of, you know, a lot of consensus. Um, and so I think there's, there's room to, you know, not, we don't need a total sort of cultural rebirth or cultural cohesion uh, as long as we can get some, as long as we can get knocked out of our kind of complacency about the the scale of the and the gravity of the situation, and uh, and then find some new consensus around sort of high level principles, even if, even if we disagree deeply on uh, deep, deeper cultural matters. So, uh, I guess you know when people say that uh, that uh, you know wokeism is just a revival of mainline Protestantism, which is a it's a take I, I've seen occasionally over the past couple of months. I guess you know there is a sort of degree of 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 truth to that, because if we're going to compare you know the, the wokening of the United States to the Great Awakening, then then it really is this like you know sort of like pseudo. Like just if we want to term it as like a series of the same factors coming together, it's another mainline Protestantism revival, I guess. Although, and I think I think my, my final thing that I'd say is, um, you know, the, we we had a great awakening, the second one after the era or the era of good feelings, and then I think if we want to say another thing which the United States might need, it's probably going to be the era of good feelings again, where. If there's if there's the spirit of can do needs to come back to the country and the spirit of you know we are America and this is you know we are ready to grow again. Yeah, no, I, I, you know something like we're can do America, like we need to revive economic growth. Like one of the reasons these these sort of things are are more appealing is they, you know, I think almost everyone would favor you know more robust economic growth. Almost everyone would favor. You know, higher wages and full employment. Um, I think these things are are far less uh, controversial than you know what we should do about uh, you know trans rights issues or whatever sort of culture war thing is is in the news. Um, and I think um, in in many ways, like our just the culture war is serving as a bit of distraction from like getting down to business. Um, and so like rather than have a resolution to the cultural war, I, I, I'd much rather we find some way of just transcending it altogether. And if we're going to commit United States again to, to libertarian or liberal values at the end of the day, the culture war should mean nothing because the government shouldn't be involved in culture to, to, a, to a great degree. It really shouldn't be involved in, in making these social policies and mandating it one way or another. Let the, I know I don't say let the market decide, but let the people decide, you know, who they want to be individually as individuals. And we don't say which one or another. Right. But that's, that's sort of, that builds in an implicit kind of liberalism, like social liberalism. So you're kind of already picking a side by saying you don't want to pick sides, right? Like, yeah, but, um, you know, but I, I think people would say that like, you know, whether, whether a trans person can use a trans uh, man can use a, the men's room, like 
that there has to be a rule one way or the other, or like what, whether, uh, you know, whether there's federal funding for Planned Parenthood or, or whether you can regulate abortion, like these things will always like have, there'll always be some policy. Right. And it, I, I have a hard time understanding what neutral would be in these, in these issues. The bigger thing is what's salient, right? Like, um, you know, bathroom policy should not be salient. It should not be the thing we're all talking about. <laughs> like there's much bigger things to talk about. And, um, and so, uh, part of the, part of the solution is just going to be to make a lot of these things less salient. Yeah, I mean, on one, on one hand, the, the making it less salient is probably better politically at the end of the day. But on the other hand, I'm, I, I'd personally be uncomfortable with like just trying to ignore like a lot of the social liberal issues because I think they are individually pressing. Maybe not in, like terms of national strength, but in terms of moral fabric of the nation. You know, I, I think that uh, uh, like any sort of social regression is 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 gonna it comes back to bite us at, in terms of in terms of cohesion and, and in terms of appreciating the liberal ideal at the end of the day, which is, and I hope is what we're going for at some point. <laughs> right. But as social conservatives would make the opposite argument, right. They'd say that, um, oh, that is true. Yeah. This is sort of, this is, uh, sort of the telos of hedonism playing itself out in history. And we're losing a lot of our, our moral fabric, uh, just reducing everything to consent or whatever. Um, I don't really have a strong opinion either way. I, I just try to stay above the fray on yeah. those arguments because I think they're so like so deeply metaphysical. And then and the and, and even if we want to have a logical debate on them, it's gonna end up being blown up by the pundits who turn the issue into so like a memification version of it. Like if you want to have a real debate on the issue and the policy ramifications and the, the moral principles, you aren't gonna find that on, on on national television or on YouTube. You're gonna find a but the loaded version from whatever side you find you know, you choose to, to watch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, obviously the media stokes all these wars because they're they're, they drive a lot of clicks and so on. Um, but I also think it's sort of a luxury that we've we have to like spend our time debating, um, you know, high level culture war issues. Like we're not we're not worried about food. We're not worried about how you know having a, a home over our head. Uh, and so, you know, in in some ways, like those just end up becoming sort of like the there's sort of like a conservation of, of problems where like it always feels like progress is never as great as it is because you're always living in a moment where you can see lots of things that need to be fixed. Um, and when, and when you're reduced to like arguing over, you know, uh, HR policy or, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, it's like, well, we, we got it pretty good. Um, and in some ways, like if this pandemic knocks us, out of our complacency, like it, it will be because economic, basic economic issues and basic issues of economic security and institutional capacity become way more salient. And we realize that we, like, we're not so comfortable that we can dedicate so much energy into worrying about, um, you know, various uh, cultural war matters. We need, we need to focus on um, more important things. Yeah. So, um, I think uh, you're, you said you had an hour, right? Uh, yeah, I think I think we're kind of approaching the end of um, what I what I have, uh, you know, ideas for questions for. Um, so, you know, 
always, always saying, you know, a Jew is the hardest part. So, um, I guess. Uh, so, uh, thank you, Sam, for for joining us today on the on the podcast. This has been a, a pretty enlightening, and yeah, I think uh, you know, in, the, in this case, ended up a lot of important ideas, which I hope you know start to get implemented uh, more and more as we enter this new uh, decade. Yeah, thank you, Joshua. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider checking out any of our other episodes on this podcast or our second podcast, Critical Thoughts, and following us on social media. As always, thank you for listening to Think Critical.